It was a good day today, wasn't it? Yeah, it was good. I, uh, a lot of you have asked about a kind of a Mandy Rowan update, and I uh, appreciate that. Uh, she's called, and uh, Rowan's fever is down, but they want to check with a couple things, and so uh, they're going to wait till morning, and then hopefully be able to, um, to join us tomorrow. So we're really praying that that will be the case. So hey, I, uh, a great day with me and, uh, and Sue and, and Ryan and Laura and the girls uh, was asking this question this morning about will our children have faith, how that's just really been a driving question in my life. Um, not only will our children have faith, but will that faith stick when they get into their adolescent years and into their emerging adult years? That's kind of what I want to think about with you tonight. I, I love being around children because they're you never know what they're going to say. They're, they're surprising. I you know, collect these little things about um, the class photograph. You know, They'd been photographed. Teacher was trying to persuade each of them to buy a copy of the group picture, elementary school picture. Just think how nice it would be to look at it when you're all grown up and say, there's Jennifer. She's a lawyer. There's Michael. He's a doctor. And a small voice rang out in the back and said, there's the teacher. She's dead. <laughs> you know, I just never... Never quite know uh, the perspective. The children lined up in the cafeteria of a Catholic elementary school for lunch. At the head of the table was a large pile of apples. The nun made a note posted on the apple tray, take only one, God is watching. Moving further down the lunch line at the other end of the table was a large pile of chocolate chip cookies. A child had written a note, take all you want, God is watching the apples. <laughs> I think that's... Or a teacher brings up, Maria, go to the map and find North America. That Maria goes, here it is, correct. Now class, who discovered America? The class tells, Maria. <laughs> it is, I just love the surprise. Uh, this one, um, Harold, what do you call a person who keeps on talking when people are no longer interested? Harold, a teacher. <laughs> uh, and that's, you know, that's always the surprise. Kids make us do weird things, get painted up. I thought of, as I'm watching the dads, I thought of this commercial about what our kids sometimes make us do uh, once we become a parent. Our life is never the same, is it again? Isn't that great? That's what it means to, to step into this role of being a parent and uh, never quite knowing uh, what will happen, what the surprise is going to be like. And um, so what I want to think with you tonight about is to wonder what is it to build a faith that will stick in the lives of our kids. And to build a faith that sticks, um, there's a couple things, again, depending on, on your context, but I would say in my life experience of working with kids, trying to help them come to know Jesus and come to a faith that, that can actually last, um, the critical decade for me is the 15 to 25-year-old decade, that 10-year period. Um, 
It's important to build the base as children. I love watching the, the children begin to have a, a base, but that baton has to get passed off into that decade. And that is the statistic that's becoming a bit challenging because depending on your statistic and who you're talking to, we're losing a chunk of them, whether it's 40 or 50 or 55 or 60. I heard one speaker say 85, I think they're, they're exaggerating. But we're beginning to study this and what we're finding is a significant number of kids who come to our youth groups uh, by the time they hit their own uh, emerging adulthood have disengaged from faith in the church. And, and many people have said, well, that's always been the case, Tiger. It's always been the case. We all, we all went to college freshman here and drank too much and whatever. Um, that's, I would say that's not the same. Culturally, it's not the same. Uh, because that was what the image I have is that was a rest stop for many of us. Um, where we went off the freeway of, of God and life and church and we got off on the rest stop, but we were there for a shorter period of time. And then we got back on the freeway and we rejoined uh, things of the church. Now, some of us didn't come to faith until much later. That's a whole different story. But for those who were involved in church life uh, as a child, it was a rest stop. My image is for many people, it's an exit ramp now. They get off, they find a city, they build community, they spend years and years there, and it gets harder and harder for them to get back into, engage in a church. Uh, and what we find is when they do re-engage, the per small percentage, about half of them, um, they don't engage at all with the church that they left. So there's a whole lot of factors to this that I just wonder about. And so... Um, I'm wrestling with this whole idea of, uh, this is a youth ministry quote that I put on my office years and years ago. It doesn't matter how many you've got coming in your church youth group, but the question of faith is, where will they be five to 10 years from now? Where will they be when they hit that critical decade? And so that's kind of what I'd like to think about. Um, I wanna set the context and I wanna suggest um, seven factors that I'm wrestling with and working on and writing about to see if we as parents or people who care about faith, uh, church people, um, grandparents, parents or whatever, can wonder about these factors and think about it. Because the point is, the clarity, remember the question, why am I here? Um, is it to get them a religious t-shirt or is it to help them build a faith that sticks? That becomes a question uh, for us. Why am I here? Um, the way I say it is about what are my hoped for outcomes? And we're going to come back to this at the end of this talk. I want to suggest about family goals. And you can talk about mission statements and vision and all those kind of things. But a phrase that makes sense to me is, what's my hope for outcome? When you're done with the child that God has given you, when you're done primarily parenting them, what are you hoping is built into their life, character-wise, moral-wise, faith-wise? That becomes the hoped for outcome that we want to work for. And if we're not careful, as I said this morning, uh, you and I can get distracted and just do a lot of stuff, spend a whole lot of money, <laughs> um, get them to a lot of activities, but we may not be shooting for a hoped for outcome. So the question that I want to start with and then we'll come back to is what would that be like for you? You have to decide. What are the hoped for outcomes? What are the things that I'm shooting for? Um, because I know every one of us in this room hopes that our kids turn out well. I know you hope that your kids, whatever, become successful and are happy and, and uh, they, they, they're okay. I, I know you hope that. But a phrase that stuck with me that I, when I first heard it a long time ago is hope is not a strategy. God bless you for a feeling, but that's not a strategy. 
Strategy is when you put legs to the hope, when you do something to go towards a hoped-for outcome. Here's an example of a strategy. Uh, this is a kid who, uh, whose hope was that Carrie Underwood would be his first kiss. Kid is 12 years old. This is a brilliant kid here. Um, that's not a bad hope, actually, by the way. I told Sue I didn't like that hope. But anyway, you know, it's a whole other matter. Um, he wanted that hope, and so his strategy was he got into the front, made a sign, and said, Carrie, will you be my first kiss? That's going beyond hope. All of his friends were hoping that. He had a strategy, and this is what happened. baby. You know, the kid had a hope, but he was strategic. You and I need to be thinking what not is our only our hope, that's a good thing, but what will be the strategy you and I will use in the, in the world that will distract us and pull us from the important things of our lives? Um, and we start talking about religious stuff when the issue is becoming a lifelong follower of Jesus, whatever that looks like, that they would pursue this relationship John 10, 10, Jesus said, I've come to give you life and life more abundantly than you'll find it anywhere else. And that's my primary hope for outcome for my kids and my grandkids, that they would come to know what that's like and, and everything else will come secondary after that. But um, that's the issue and we have to have a strategy for it or we will just simply do some stuff and hope that that works. Um, but I have a phrase I also uh, use a lot. Uh, they say, vagueness is killing the church. This vague ideas that sounds sort of like God and a little bit of this, but we don't have a target. We're not shooting for anything. Um, vagueness has tended to kill us a lot. What it produces, we're finding, is we're studying the faith life of teenagers. Um, we're doing all kinds of stuff. And if might, some of you have heard this phrase. But uh, if you haven't learned it, you write it down and you can just impress your friends and neighbors by using it over coffee next week um, to say I'm concerned about the moralistic, therapeutic, deistic theology of the American youth. Sounds great, like you're really smart, right? Of moralistic, therapeutic deism. What we, as a study of kids all over the country who claim to be Christian, when they found out what they meant by that, most kids defined it being nice. That's what it means. And they, they couldn't articulate almost anything. Um, so it, what they've coined this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism. Here's what I, I'll give you my simple definition of what that means. The average kid who claims to believe in God 
it's about morals, right, wrong, good, bad. Um, there's a continuum. You gotta, if you're a Christian, you're better than the non-Christian. You're nicer to people than the people who don't believe in God. We, you know, we're just nicer people. We're supposed to be nice. So that's what it means. It's all about morals, what I called sin management. It's all about just being a little more managing our sin than those who don't say they believe in God. Um, I, I don't know how that's going in your life, but I trip over that a lot, and that's why Jesus died on the cross, so that, because I can't do this by myself. But moralistic would be the first. Therapeutic is God's job is to make my life go better. That's his job. If I believe in God, then God's job is to make my life go better. And so if I believe in Jesus, I'm gonna get a date to prom. And if I don't, then God has abandoned me, doesn't love me, or isn't real. And we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow night. Um, and I'll share a little bit about some things I'm learning about that. So uh, moralistic therapeutic, uh, he's the grandpa on the porch of heaven who gives you nice presents at Christmas. That's what God's job is. And then deism is basically it's God with a small g. Jesus was never mentioned in almost any of these kids. When they articulated their faith in Jesus, Jesus was never mentioned. It was just this loosey-goosey kind of God thing. Um, I call it the God that is not threatening, scary, or anything else. It's just a God that's there. And so that's kind of what they said, moralistic, therapeutic, deistic theology. Then comes into our, the challenge of how to take hope into strategy. And we find it, I call it the, you know, the issue is that faith is not vagueness. It's not just uh, attendance at certain things. It's not putting your butt in a religious building. That's not what faith is. Um, it's not Sunday school answers, although a lot of church kids know Sunday school answers. Um, I didn't come to know Jesus until I was 18 years old, but I learned really quickly about certain answers, and you just, you just learn those, and then you get through the small group really well. And that's really, we know, is not what faith is. It's certainly not faith that sticks. Um, answering the worksheet compliance, or what I call casual holiness, which is the ability to look like you're spiritual even though nothing's happening inside. All of us who go to church know how to perfect this. It's called faking it. We, we do this pretty well, a lot of us. Um, Kids pick it up pretty quickly. I worked with church kids a lot, and, and they know how to do casual holiness. Um, that isn't what faith is. That, that, those factors, that you can have kids who have, are able to do all of that, and that isn't the indicator of, of what sticks. So let me suggest this idea. Uh, D, the D6 challenge is back from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, um, real quickly, and then I want to highlight my seven, uh, my little list that I brought for you tonight. Deuteronomy 6, if you've been around church, you might have heard versions of this because it's spread out in Deuteronomy 11 and, and Chronicles. Hear, O Israel, and be careful to obey so that the Lord, so it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress these things or teach these things to your children. Talk about them when you sit on the, at home and when you walk. And notice the four movements. This is, this is hope with strategy. Notice the four movements of family life. Just wonder what it would look like if you asked, why am I here? What could I do in these movements? The first one, talk about them when you sit at home. What, what could you do in your home where you begin to put words to your faith and talk about faith and life? And we can talk about that a little bit more. But that's a critical movement. And when you walk along the road, now it would be drive along the road without being totally plugged in and isolated. What would that look like? 
Um, I used to love driving in the car with my kids when they were in the back seat with their friends because they thought there was an invisible wall between the back seat and the front seat. They would just talk to each other. And if I shut up, I could learn all kinds of stuff. Um, what would it look like in that context? What, how about when it says when you lie down? What kind of bedtime, evening rituals could you develop where faith could be integrated? And when you get up. Now, some of your kids are get up nice people and other people are get up and survive the first half an hour people. Uh, so you gotta figure out the rhythms of your life, but those are four movements. Tie them as symbols on your hands, bind them on your foreheads, write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. A, a, a great text that I wanna lead into the fa factors with these ideas. One is it starts with the faith of the adults. Anytime you talk about faith of children, the Bible says it's about faith of the adults. Why does this passage start? By the way, this was not a parent seminar. This was spoken to everybody. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. This should be on your hearts first. It's about us. It's always a challenge to me when I remember that. That, that anything I want to build into my kids, it, the challenge first is in me. And uh, we'll talk about uh, that in a, in a minute. And passing on the faith is a responsibility of all the adults, not just parents, but all of the adults. It's why we need to be connected to other people because they're part of this journey. Again, this was spoken to all the people. Um, parents can't do it alone. I know we try, but American individualism is killing us as parents. This idea that you can raise a healthy child by yourself, um, it was never meant to be. So it says all of you are supposed to impress. Remember the words were spoken to every adult. Impress these things on your children. Um, and your children means anyone who's in the nation or anyone's in, in, in your faith community. And it requires intentionality and actions, not just hope, but intentionality and actions. And, and there was actions about door frames and on your foreheads and whatever your, your intentionality will look different, but you and I have to build intentionality. That sets the context for the seven things I'd like to share with you tonight about what if the factors that I would suggest are variables that will decrease the dropout rate or decrease the risk of dropout. First, and, and, and there's, I, there's bookends to it. There's seven. First one is this one, and then the last one, and then everything in between, and we'll talk about why that is. First one is family of origin. That's us. That's what I call a non-controllable variable when I talk to ministry people. In other words, I talk to youth workers, and I go, you can't change this one, but it's a huge factor. Um, how many of you, I'm going to assume that we would each maybe in the, our own journey uh, claim some sense of faith today. How many of you grew up in a home with at least one parent that was a positive faith role model for you? Raise your hand. Look around the room. Hold them up. That's not normal. If you did that same thing of American kids today, they would not have that high of a percentage. Um, what that means is for us, our family was somewhat of a faith factor. I want to be very careful about this to not suggest that these seven things are a formula, that if you can shove five of them at your kids, they're guaranteed to never struggle. Uh, but if your kid only has two, you're getting ready. They're going to be off the charts. Because two reasons. One is um, I grew up with one of these faith factors, only one, and I'll tell you which one. Uh, when I and I think I'm hanging in there. It's been 40 years. So I'm, I'm hanging. So you can, it isn't a formula. Um, and the other is, uh, I've watched many kids of faithful parents 
uh, have prodigal experiences. So no formula, but this is a factor, okay? That's the first one. The second one I call clear faith experience. Here's what I mean by that. I call it a sacred memory. Uh, when God shows up and they can't deny it. I think the more a child, more that you and I have these moments where God has shown up in our world, a sacred memory, as I call it, those become the, the, the things that almost haunt us when we drift, when we wander, when we go to college. I would like, by the way, in ministry, I want my kids that I work with to have as many of these as possible because then when they drift, God will haunt them. <laughs> the Holy Spirit will use those sacred memories to haunt them. You, some of you know what that's like, to, to be drifting and have this reality of, but I remember when God was real to me, when God showed up and it made a difference. It may not be that you can even explain it all, but, I want, but you have to help them notice it. This is why I want kids on mission trips, why I want kids in Bible studies, why I want kids in youth group, why I want kids... Um, noticing when God is doing, I want to pray, I want whatever it is. It's not because anything magical in each thing, but each thing might be the place. By the way, remember this, you can't control the outcome. I can't make a sacred memory happen, I've tried. In ministry, I've tried as a parent. Make it happen, it doesn't work. That's the job of the Spirit. But when God shows up, it's God shows up. I'm guessing if we could talk we could find those mem our own memory banks of moments when God showed up. Sometimes in, in great moments. For me, here's my, this is my only faith factor. 18 years old, sitting under a tree, Young Life Camp, Colorado, Silver Cliff, Thursday night. No, no controlled formula. Nobody said anything other than we're having 15 minutes of quiet. Go think about it. And I'd been going to Young Life for two and a half years, grew up in an alcoholic family, never heard about Jesus, didn't know anything, was in a great deal of pain, there I was under a tree and God showed up. Nobody made it happen. They set the table. God showed up and that was my sacred memory. That haunted me all the way through philosophy 101 spring quarter freshman year when the teacher was trying to make me doubt that the class was real, that the desk was real, <laughs> much less God being real. And up against my final paper when it was about the existence of God, I simply laid in front of him and said, you can't steal that from me because it was true. I was like the blind man. I can't explain it, but I was blind, but now I see. And I got a C on the paper, uh, which was just fine with me um, because I didn't think he was real anyway, so it didn't matter. Uh, <laughs> but we want those places. And, and again, as parents, we want to try to create it, but it's just one of the factors um, and then they have to help them notice. This is why with, with kids in particular, when I'm with a teenager and they're describing that God showed up and they're like, uh, that was like awesome. Well, tell me more about what, well, I don't know. It was like awesome. Okay, great. You're an articulate, you know, 18-year-old or 15-year-old. But I want them to talk about it because um, then their brain has to recognize it and notice it. It's this whole brain development thing. I can get weird on you. But... Um, I want my kids, when I'm working with, to talk about it so that their ears hear their mouth defend their, and articulate a faith experience. I don't know what it was. All I know is I felt close to God like I've never felt before. Bingo! That kid now has a haunted, sacred memory that'll get them when they're freshmen in college. You know? I want as many of those as possible. So family of origin is there. Uh, the sacred memory is number two. Number three is peer support. We've been saying this for years. 
Kids tend to grow spiritually when they're around kids who are growing spiritually. Um, I've, I've watched this happen in youth ministry all the time. It either happens that positively or it not. Uh, girls in particular make this mistake. Maybe if some of you were, did this, you're, if you're a Christian teenage girl, you did evangelistic dating. You, know, you, you date the bad boy thinking you're gonna help him come to know Jesus. How'd that work for you? Well, some of you are married to him, so that worked. Uh, but my, I, all I would tell my youth group kids is I'm not gonna tell you what you can and can't do. That's not my job, but here's what I'll tell you. In all my years of experience, and I would say, I can only think of one or two girls that have had any success with that, that evangelistic dating thing. Why? Because we tend to gravitate to the lowest kind. I don't know, it's just part of our sin nature. So it's a problem. Positive peer support is important, especially in transition years, when they're moving from elementary to middle, and middle to high school, and high school into college. Hugely important to wrestle with that. Um, that's why college ministry is really important in my mind now. We can't quit at high school. We gotta think about what it means because that is huge. That's a whole adolescent development thing. Again, we could do more than you wanna hear. But that's an important factor, okay? You got it? Family of origin, that's us. Uh, faith experience, set the table, but God has to show up. Um, positive peer support, that's huge. Uh, number four is they gotta know. It, it, the Bible is important. It's the truth that sets us free. And we gotta make sure our kids get exposed and ex experience hearing about the Bible in ways that are creative and energetic and apply to their life. Not Bible trivia because there's a tr quiz in heaven, but because the Bible can apply to our lives. I, I want kids to know this is a truth that can actually speak to you as a 14-year-old. It actually can make a difference. It can shape your world. You can't access God's truth if you don't understand or know or have not uh, come into grips with God's truth. And that's true for all of us. Uh, it's not, a, I don't think Bible study is oughta, gotta, shoulda. It's an opportunity to hear what might set us free, to break bondages, to, to, to come to know a truth, to, to hear a promise that we need to stand on in good times and in bad times. But that's huge. Number five, early leadership experience. That's why I love what you're doing here at this camp. Not only here, but, and not only in the children's programs, but you see the third piece that they're doing here that's magic is the KC program. Every one of those kids is being going from consumer faith, religion is but in a pew, to God is using me through the eyes of a child, through the eyes of a teenager, through the eyes of a peer. All of a sudden, they're moving from this passive kind of understanding of faith to an active. It's a great idea. It's a great model. I wrote a book on student leadership because it's a key, I think, one of the factors. After that Thursday night, one faith factor experience, uh, by the grace of God and by um, really people making bad judgments, um, I got an opportunity in that. Remember that first picture? I was uh, only a year away from that under the tree experience, just only a year. And that year was a bad year, so I wasn't being discipled for that year. I had a horrible freshman year. And yet someone believed in me enough to give me an early leadership experience. They shouldn't have, they shouldn't have hired me. Uh, bad idea, but you know, he's still my good friend, Tom, uh, best man at my wedding, and he's now publicly said at seminars, you know, I do seminars, people think I know what I'm talking about, but he's come and said, by the way, I just want you to know, when he started, he was really bad, <laughs> which is the truth. I didn't know anything, but someone gave me an opportunity 
clear, specific, come work at this drop-in center, and you might be used by God. It changed everything about me. And so clear opportunities are important, KC programs, et cetera, um, because somebody believed in them. When kids are believed in, things start to change. When they go from the belief that, that it isn't just about doing something, but actually um, experiencing what God is up to by participating in it, but someone has to believe in them. Um, I think of Crystal in our church. Crystal's a girl, she was probably a, maybe a sophomore in high school. She had come to faith in Christ and had shared her story and uh, I'd gotten to know her. She was growing up in a family where a uh, single mom, bilingual family, so she knew Spanish. Um, we, we'd do a mission trip every year to go to Honduras. So that particular year, um, I said to her, uh, Crystal, I would like you to come to Honduras with us and be like our, my prime, I was the, the, the leader, my wife and I go all the time, but I, I kind of said to her, I'd like you to be our primary translator, I'd like you to be my right-hand person, I'd like you to come along on the trip. And she's like, well, I don't know, is it a youth trip? And I said, no, you, you'd probably be the only teenager on the trip. She's like, really? That sounds kind of boring. Um, but, you know, I said, I, I really, in fact, I said to Crystal, I don't think I can do this trip without you, I really need you. Would you, would you consider going? She said, well, my mom can't afford it, and I don't know, and... I said, well, how about we just pray about it? Why don't you pray, see what God opens up, I will pray, and let's see if maybe this trip is on, on the agenda for your life. She said, okay, so she started to pray, I started to pray, Sue started to pray, and then have you ever done that? You pray and then you wanna help God out, so you start talking to people. Well, I went and talked to a few people in my church, and one couple said, oh, I, that girl's story, I remember hearing it, it's so great, I really believe in her, she's got Great potential, I, that's a great kid. I will give you $500 to help her go to Honduras. I said, that'd be great. So I went to Sunday school that Sunday, I knock on the door, Crystal, get over here. She's like, oh, grabs her friend's hand, comes over to the door, like creepy old guy at the door. And so she comes over and I said, remember we talked about going to Honduras? You've been praying about it? Yeah, so have I. You know what? This week, uh, someone gave me $500 because they believe in you and think you should go to Honduras. If you could have seen her face when she started to cry and she grabbed my hand and she said, do they really believe in me? She'd never heard that before. Her family couldn't speak those words to her. And I said, yes, they do believe in you. And so do I, but more importantly, Crystal, God believes in you. And you're crafted for this and this is gonna be a great time. Are you in? She goes, I am in. And we had this great moment standing there in the hallway of Sunday school a sacred memory for her and a sacred memory for me, a reminder that God is at work. I told that story later that week. I shared that story with someone in my church. They said, I'll match that $500. I'm like, shut up, I need the money. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went back to her, I said, we got another $500 for you, but I said, that's it. The rest of it, you gotta earn yourself. She came to fundraisers and babysat and earned the rest of the money and came on the trip and it transformed her understanding of who she was but it starts with someone giving her a clear opportunity because they believe in them. And parents, we have to find ways for us to do that, but also for other people to speak that. Because the minute you start speaking that, what needs are being met? They, need, they know they're loved, they're valuable, and they're not alone because someone believes in them. And that was a breakthrough for a young girl named Crystal. Uh, and that's our job, is to find those moments. Um, and we, sometimes it means we have to raise the bar, stretch them a little bit, expect something from them. 
And sometimes that's hard. So much of our faith is wired to get people comfortable, to believe that God loves them, it's great. But in, when you know you're valuable and you're not alone, sometimes it means you gotta go out of your comfort zone. Uh, and we'll talk about that on Sunday before we go home. And therefore we have to help them sometimes be uncomfortable. So that's number five. Number six is I would argue that one of the faith factors is searching, a safe place to wonder. If we don't give this place to our teenagers in particular, to young adults, and by the way, to even mature, wonderful people like us, safe place to wonder, um, often it, it derails spiritual progress. Place to share doubts. Well, and again, these are gonna come up later in, a, in some of the other talks I'll give you. But it's incredibly important we found that kids have to have a safe place where they can ask hard questions, where they can wonder, is that, how does that work? What does that look like? Instead of just agreeing they need to have a place where they can wonder so that when they do agree, they've wrestled with it enough and it's their own. If they don't have it their own, they'll spout off what you believe or what youth pastor believes and then they go to college and they, it all, it all uh, comes unpacked. So uh, the issue of safe place. And the last one, the other bookend is mentors outside the family, which is other caring adults who love our kids in the name of Jesus. It's a critically important thing. Um, it's been part of my life as a as youth ministry person all of my life is to try to be this and try to train people to be this part. Faith, that doesn't, this doesn't, faith factor does not replace family. It is not in competition with family. It's the bookends of helping our kids have a faith that sticks. It's parents and family and mentors outside the family. Uh, Cross-generational connections. Relational ministry lived out in real life in real terms, that's much of what we see. It's adults who care. Uh, I, I, I suggest the kind of mentors I wanna build around kids are adults who care, Christ-centered, uh, available, real, meaning authentic. Kids are looking for adults who have a real faith that's authentic, lands in the real world and makes sense. They don't want this pie in the sky, you know, Every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Woo. Kids smell that out in a minute uh, when they become adolescents. And E is encouraging. If, if I want an adult to come alongside of kids, I want them to be Christ-centered, available, real, and encouraging. Um, and uh, the more we develop that into our churches, the more we develop that into our uh, extended families, the better off our kids are gonna be. The 5-1 difference is an idea that's been uh, shared a number of times and thrown into a book. It's, it's, it's this idea. The old model of youth ministry sort of was, well, let's get one adult to volunteer to run a group of five to seven people, right? Small group leader to de lead our discussions, right? That's a great, that's been the model for years and we call that relational ministry and that's great and it's important. But here's the, it, what it does, turn it upside down. It said, what would it look like, mom and dad, if we asked this question, what would happen if, at least five caring, Christ-centered, available, real, encouraging people surrounded my child with a message that they are investing in my child and they're gonna speak consistently into their needs to know their love, their value, not alone. What would it look like to have at least five around them? The theory in many of our churches of the godparent model, which many of us still use, but I find uh, very few then are active afterwards. It's unfortunate because it's a great model. They're saying, I'll be one of the five. Grandparents can be one of the five. When you have this, you have this understanding that you have part of it, hopefully, 
but there needs to be more than your voice. Because you know what? When they become 15, your voice is kind of dumb <laughs> for a while. And we'll talk about that uh, tomorrow morning. But it happens. You need other people around them. Um, and we're having people in our church are very intentional about that. They've asked us, some of us, to be one of the five. We're using that imagery. I did this seminar with parents and kids together, and I talked about the five. One, on the way out, one of the kids, one of the guys turned to his mom on the way out and said, Mom, I can only think of four. We need to think of one more. And I thought, what a great conversation in the car on the way home. Who could be the fifth one? Who do you look up to? Who do you respect? Who would you like to get to know better? And then you turn to that person and say, not that it's just decided, but you ask them, will you be willing to invest in that kid? Will you uh, remember things? Will you, will you do more than just be a token? 5-1 is a great model. It's just a, an idea to consider. Um, the sense of being known and cared for by the community. And it's really a loving environment. Okay, those are the seven. Family of origin, sacred memories, positive peer support, knowing the Bible, getting some chance where they actually do something with their faith, early leadership, searching mentors outside the family. Um, and maybe in your groups you can have a little chat about that. But I wanna come back to this question before we go. Why am I here? What are my hoped for outcomes? Um, mom and dad, uh, grandparents, it's a great question. By the way, the 5-1, I've watched it in many different ways and the value of a, of a mentor outside the family. For me, it was a guy named Bob. Bob was one of the faith factors that came after, just an incredibly important person that helped shape my life. Um, you may remember, think of someone who was one of the five one in your life. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. But, but back to clarity, what are your hoped for outcomes? So before we go, here's what I'd like to wonder about with you. I, I, would, I know people, speakers who talk about mission statements, right, a family mission statement, and, and that's a great idea. Um, but I would wonder with you, what would it look like if you and you uh, alone, if you're a single parent, would talk to other parents, if you're a couple, talk together, and, and say out loud, here are my top four or five, no more than five. You start getting in 12 goals, you're in serious trouble. Four or five primary goals I have for my child. Here's what I'm hoping to build into them. Again, and I hope it's more than they get a scholarship at college. That there's some, it's about the character, and we'll talk uh, about that in another talk. But what are the four goals that you have to wonder? Because I would argue that this will shape you. This will begin to um, cause you when you're parenting to come back to the question, why am I here? Because again, am I the only one that gets distracted? I get distracted all the time. I had four in my head growing up uh, that I often repeated to myself. Here's, here they are. I'll give them to you only to get your mind going, not because you have to agree with them or anything. But here are the, here are the four I had. One was that, um, my first one was that my kids would have a personal relationship to God through Jesus. I felt that was my primary job, that I wanted each of my children to have a personal faith in God through Jesus. Um, and that challenged a lot of things, folks, when it gets to busyness, when it gets to priorities, when it gets to use of time, when it gets to calendar. It, it, it will, this one will bump up a lot against priorities around us. So that was number one. Uh, number two, I wanted them to be responsible. I'm big on responsibility, meaning um, 
no escape clausing, no victimizing, no, I mean, this couldn't help it. Uh, take responsibility, um, own up to your mistakes, face what it means, um, go to God with it, uh, but, but live a life where you manage your money, you, you accept responsibility, you are, follow through on commitments. I mean, those were values that were really important to me, and, I, and that's how I named it. I want them to, to have a personal issue with God to be... Um, responsible, I wanted them to, I wanted to have a relationship with them when they were out of my home. My foster daughter's parents chose to parent in such a way that she does, never had a relationship with them. I didn't want that. I didn't want to manage their sin while they were in my home to such a point that they hated me and never wanted to talk to me again when they left. By the way, I battled this one. And then the fourth one was I wanted them to know that they were loved unconditionally. That no matter what they did, I would love them. Uh, I, I don't know if you remember this, Ryan, but Ryan and I, uh, at one point, I went through these with him, and uh, or I think he was in the early 20s, and I talked to him, and I said, how do, how do you think I did on that? And he said, that fourth one, you didn't do too well for a while. He said, it was, you know, I didn't feel like you loved me unconditionally for a while. My response in my mind was, well, if you wouldn't have screwed up so much, it would have been, I... <laughs> but see, I, I, it became one of those four things. And that's huge because I need to be reminded of my primary goals or I will get lost in the rabbit trails of parenting all the time. I will get lost all the time. Uh, I got Ryan's permission. I only tell this in public because he has shared it with his youth group uh, at certain points. Um, but let me just give you one example of why these are important and they often are in crisis. Um, Ryan at, uh, just turned 18, so it was not when he was a juvenile. It was when he was now an adult. Uh, working at a store, um, he called me at 10 o'clock at night, um, and he was, had been arrested. He was arrested for uh, stealing at work at his job. And it was, he, he, took, he, he took the second value, he took responsibility, which really drove me crazy because he did it before I could help him, you know, work the system a little bit. Took responsibility and signed as an adult a document that, that stated a, a certain dollar value that made it a pretty serious deal. And so the, he called and said, I've been arrested. Um, they're transferring me to Hennepin County Jail, which is that big one in downtown Minneapolis, very scary building. And so they hauled him to Hennepin County Jail and I went down and I got to the front desk and they said, it'll be a while, it's been a busy night. So I went home, um, came back about two o'clock when they said he'd be released. He wasn't released till about six in the morning, by my recollection. Folks, I wanna tell you that those four hours were some of the loneliest hours I've spent as a dad, sitting on a concrete wall waiting for my son to be released from prison, from jail. And my head had gone down this road of I'll never be able to do a, a seminar again. I'm, you know, I'm such a failure. It was all, my early reaction was about me. How could he do this to me? It was all about me. I would argue that God gave me those four hours to help me get closer to my goals. Because on that wall, I thought of the goals. What are my goals here? When he walks out that door, and there was a door right there at the end of the hallway, and I kept looking at the door. When he walks out that doorway, what, what kind of dad am I going to be? I want a personal relationship with God through Jesus. That's my primary one. I prayed really hard. Sue said she just laid at home and prayed. That, that somehow, you know what? Bible talks about God showing up in jail cells. And I was saying, God, could you show up in a jail cell? My son 
It's about my son coming to a truth that will set him free from whatever it is. And by the way, in his story, he talks about God showing up in a jail cell. What an amazing Bible story. I, well, my second one, responsible. I'm not going to rescue him, but how is he going to learn how to, what, what responsibility issues does he need to learn? God, help me with that. It took me four hours to beating it in my head. Number three, don't act in such a way that I break the relationship. I want a relationship with that young man, and I want him, number four, to know that he's loved unconditionally, that I'm going to be with him no matter what, no matter what, no matter what. Took God four hours. I don't know that I was a, we just have this. I don't know that I was a great dad at six in the morning, but I was a way better dad than I would have been at two in the morning. Because at two in the morning, I was way focused on me and I was way far from my goals. And I would have behaved and reacted in a way that would have pushed me further from those goals. And I just, I just share that because this journey has got these bumps. And, and the closer we get to being able to name what it is that we really are hoping for, what's the hope for outcome in our kids? What, what is it we're gonna go to bat for? Um, and uh, again, it wasn't, I wasn't perfect uh, at six in the morning, but uh, I think we're closer to having achieved those goals. And I'm incredibly proud of Ryan because he saw what God needed to do in his life at that moment and has shared that with kids. Um, and um, so I just, I give that to you as a, as a way to kind of put a lot of this into, into real terms. I'm gonna try to be as honest as I can uh, in our time together, because parenting is really hard. And um, we can't do this alone. And so um, when you get into small groups, maybe some of that will show up. What, what would be some of the values you would name? What would that look like? How could you help each other? Um, what would that look like to be able to have a clearer sense of the faith factors? Because some of them are things you can control, some are not. Because guess what? We all want our children to have faith. We want them to grow up to be the person God has designed them to be. We want them to be free from the things that will trap them and, and, and cause them to, to be broken. We want them to be full, filled with the knowledge that God is with them, that they're loved, they're valuable, and they're never alone. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your faithfulness to us, that you relentlessly pursue us. You remind us constantly that we are loved and valuable, not alone. And that you want us to be those kinds of people, to our children, to our grandchildren, to the people we come in contact with, to anyone of the next generation. May these few days together encourage us and remind us of truth that will maybe set us free to be better parents, more focused, clearer, and more passionate. And we ask that you give us a reminder of our own value in you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks. Thank you, Tiger.